Good afternoon. If you'd open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, that's where we're going to be today, 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're looking at a passage that I think is the heart of the epistle uh, to First uh, Peter. And I'm excited that we've gotten to this point. And one of the things we're going to be doing today is doing a bit of a review. It's going to be rather quick of where we've come from, because I think to understand this passage, we've got to understand what Peter has been doing up to this point. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read the passage, and then we'll pray, and then uh, we'll get right into it. So here we are in 1 Peter chapter 3. We begin in verse 13. Peter asks this question, now who is there? To harm you if you are zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to give an answer to defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is your word, and I'm thankful to be a servant of yours to be a mouthpiece, and I want, to, even as the book of First Peter tells me, to speak as one who speaks the very words of God. These are yours, and these are your people. I'm grateful for you calling together these saints to glorify your name in Belleville, to make you known by their deeds and their words. I thank you for the unity that you've shown over these many months for this congregation. I thankful, I'm thankful for the expression of the gospel that Belleville has had because of this assembly of people. And now, as we look into your word this afternoon, we long for your spirit. We long for a conviction that is evidence of your working in our hearts. We long to be further along in our journey of being transformed into the image of your son. You've given to us so much. Already, you've given to us the promise of the forgiveness of sins, the promise that there is an age to come in which all of the rewards that you provide for us, you will have given to us graciously and will be outstanding. You've given to us promises of your perpetual presence among us. And you've given to us a promise that you would be here with us. You've told us that where two or three gather in your name, and here we are in your name, you have told us you'd be among us. And so we ask that your presence would be known, even in our own hearts. This afternoon, as we look in 1 Peter three thirteen to 17, we want to know what you've spoken. We want to know what you say, because we want to be changed. So help us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So I labeled this message, the blessed life, or I could have said the good life. And it's a bit odd because then after the colon, it's don't fear, but rejoice. And you think to some degree, what, what's the deal with the fear part? If it's the good life, then there should be no fear at all, right? It's an interesting uh, balance that scripture provides. We have just last week 
walked through a passage in which Peter, quoting the Old Testament, says, whoever, lo- whoever desires to love life and to see good days, then do these various things. And in many ways, we sort of want that to be a promise. We want that to be a tit for tat. I do this and then I get that. But here's the truth that we all recognize, but we have to embrace even for today. That is that expectations are not always realities. Expectations are not always realities. You can ask anyone who's ever used a dating app and they'll tell you that may be true. But it's also true in various other ways. Just go to the DMV website and they say, we value your time. Schedule here a 15-minute appointment, and you just chuckle. Because expectations are not quite realities, are they? Uh, Please forgive me if you work at the DMV, I'm sure. uh... Or how about the IRS? You go to their website, and they say, well, just fill out this simple form. And you sort of chuckle because the expectation doesn't quite meet the reality, does it? Or you go to Ikea, and they say, hey, look, you can have this It'll only take 20 minutes to assemble. And after three and a half hours, uh, you are a bit frustrated because the expectation did not quite meet the reality. And you know, the, the honest truth is there's a certain element in which that is the case in our lives today because we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. And sometimes you do make a statement and there's a full expectation and yet you're not able to fulfill it. And I think when we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, when the Old Testament is telling us this is how to live the good life. And it tells us here in the New Testament, this is how to live the good life. Here's the recipe for living a harmonious life in which you build good relationships within your family, outside your family. Here's how to build good relationships with unbelievers. And all of that looks fantastic on paper, and that's how it ought to work, and that's wonderful and beautiful, but then life gets messy, doesn't it? It's like reading the uh, marriage book before you're married, and you say, I got this. Right? And then you get into it, and it's like, this wasn't in the marriage book. <laughs> and and, and you're, you're doing all the principles, but, you know, you run into sinful reality, and, and life just works this way. Well, what we find here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, Peter asks a rhetorical question. At the beginning, he says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous or passionate for what is good? Who is going to harm you if you are passionate for what is good? Now, I'm going to suggest to you that up to, up to this point in 1 Peter, Peter has told us that we are, the, we are to be the sorts of people who do good, who are known for doing good. And therefore, this particular situation applies to us. The question would be, if in fact we are passionate for what Peter has said so far, then clearly we shouldn't be persecuted for that. We shouldn't be mistreated for being good. Just follow with me for just a moment because Peter, as he walks through First Peter, has already told us a number of things. And the, the first is this, we should give the world no good reason to persecute us. Is that true? Yes, we should give the world no good reason to persecute us. Now, they're going to persecute us. We're going to get to that in just a minute. 
But it's not going to be for a good reason. We should give them no good reason to persecute us. Now, Peter has made this comment in a couple of ways. Uh, He's mentioned, hey, listen, if you suffer because of your own sin, well, that's on you. Even here in verse 17, he says it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. That is, there's a type of suffering you can endure because you did evil and you deserved it. And so don't come complaining about it, right? But on the other hand, there's a type of suffering you might endure that you didn't deserve, that you didn't earn. It wasn't actually on the account of what you did, but simply because you were trying to be righteous. And the response of the world was to afflict you. So I think Peter's been telling us up to this point, and even tells us in this context, we should give the world no good reason to persecute us. But the flip case is actually true as well. We should give the world many reasons not to persecute us. And I think that this is, this is accurate to First Peter. If, if you've got your Bibles there, look at with me again back in 2 verse 12. Actually, let's begin in verse 11. Remember, this is the turning point in the book of 1 Peter. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, that is, as members of a heavenly family who are right now stuck on this earth, I encourage you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. In other words, don't give in to the flesh. If you remember, we walk back to that. We often think of that in sexual terms. But most of the things that the scripture talks about the flesh are things like selfishness, bitterness, just caring only for yourself. And he says, war against those things. Don't give in to the passions of the flesh. And then notice the second thing he says. Keep your conduct among among the Gentiles honorable. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying when they look at your life, they should say, that's an honorable person. He goes on, so that when they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may see your good deeds. In other words, they speak evil of you, but when they look at you, they say, I know that's not really true. I'm saying that, but it's not true. So this is what Peter had said in 2, 11 to 12, and then what he did systematically in the passages to follow, which we've walked through, is he said, all right, so how does that apply when it comes to governmental relations? Well, Submit to, the, submit to the ruling authorities. How does that apply within the slave-master relationship? How does that apply within the husband-wife relationship? How does that apply within the church and outside the church? That was, those were the passages we just walked through over the last number of weeks. So in some sense, the passage we're at now is a pinnacle. It's, it's a, it's a fi- finality to the section we've been walking through. Peter has made this claim. You ought to live your life so honorably that the Gentiles recognize it and are drawn to Christ. So, if we do that, if we live honorably, we deny the passions of the flesh, logically, what should be the response of our world? They should be quite thankful. They should should be rejoicing over the fact that they have neighbors who love other people so much that they are living such good lives. That's that's the logical response. But you know, here's the problem. We We live in a fallen world, don't we? And we'll get to this at a different point, but I think part of the reason that people don't, and didn't like Christ, 
and they often don't like Christ's followers, is because the very fact that we don't do what they do is a condemnation of what they do. People don't like, it, don't like that. So in the perfect world, we obviously would receive no pushback. But notice how Peter starts here. He says, listen, that may be true that this would be the good life. If you lived according to this way, you'd have the good life. But here's what he says in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Or in other words, if you're doing all this right, who's going to be the one that's going to produce any harm towards you? Who would it be? Logically, it would be nobody. But then notice he follows it quite quickly with verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness. Now it's interesting what Peter's doing here. Because Peter is writing to a congregation that he is already quite fully aware. That they are being persecuted for righteousness sake. So I think his implication or the reason that he's building the case this way. Is he's trying to show them. Look, you are living right. Because I think sometimes when we sense a pushback, when we sense a persecution for our beliefs, we can begin to doubt in our hearts. We start thinking, well, maybe, maybe I'm not right. Maybe this isn't the right direction. But Peter's saying, no, you've been on the right direction. You're doing the right thing. And if people were logical, if people weren't sinful, which sin... You can read about this in Romans chapter 1. Do you know what it messes with? The mind. It breaks the moral mind. And so we find that though we would expect people to respond to us well, they don't. So, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So, we, shouldn't get, we should give the world no good reason to persecute us. Second, we should give them a lot of reasons not to persecute us. But the third thing, and this is what we have to understand, we nevertheless must expect persecution. We must expect persecution, though we are not to fear it. And again, this, I'm getting this from verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake... You will be blessed. So what happens or what should happen within our hearts whenever we experience rejection, whenever we experience suffering or persecution as a result of righteousness? Here's what Peter says. Don't fear them. Don't fear. You see it there. Have no fear of them. Neither be troubled. In the circumstance in which you have done righteousness and you're experiencing persecution for it, don't fear them. You know, it's interesting that this phrase here, you, if you have different translations, it could be taken two different ways. Because literally the phrase means, don't fear their terror. Don't fear their terror. And that could be, don't fear what they fear. That's interesting. It could be, don't fear them. And it's not exactly clear which side to take, but I would actually have us look at a passage that perhaps helps us to think about it. Isaiah 8, 12 to 13. Because if you read Isaiah 8, what you're going to find is that Peter is quoting from Isaiah 8 in this 1 Peter passage. 
And I've got to build a little bit of the context of Isaiah 8 in order for us to understand what's happening at this point. Isaiah and his compatriots there are quite afraid because they've been told that the Assyrians are coming. Now, that may not impact you, you and I very, very much here today. But if you lived at the time period in which they were at and you heard that the Assyrians were coming, you would have been shaking in your boots. These were a wicked, vile people that did not treat their enemies well. And there was this idea that, the, that they were going to come and they were going to conquer and they were going to destroy the southern empire. And God says to Isaiah, don't fear what they fear. By the way, Isaiah's looking up. He's looking at the destruction of other nations, the way that other nations have been decimated by the Assyrians and mistreated to high degree. And Isaiah probably in his own heart has anticipation, has fear as he considers the potential that this might happen to him and his people. But God comes to Isaiah and he says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. That phrase right there, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, is the exact phrase you're seeing in First Peter chapter two or chapter three. He says, don't, uh, don't fear, nor be afraid. That's this phrase right here. Don't be in dread, don't fear. That's an interesting thing because he's telling Isaiah, listen, I know that there is a massive army out there. And I know that massive army seems to be coming your direction. And they are about to decimate your land. But don't be afraid of them. That's sort of like somebody in Ukraine right now, to some degree. Seeing this mighty power, this much bigger state coming upon them and saying, well, don't be afraid. It's like, well, <laughs> maybe there's a little bit of reason to be afraid. And God says to Isaiah, don't be afraid. Now, how could he not be afraid in a situation like this? Well, let's continue with the quote, because I think it gives us better understanding of what he's saying. So don't be afraid, nor be in dread. But here's the contrast. Here's what you should do instead of fearing in that way. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor. As holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Coming back to the first Peter passage then. Notice what Peter says. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. You'll be blessed. Have no fear of them. Nor be troubled. You know I find it interesting that there are two elements to this command because he's got the first, have no fear of them. And that, that seems to be an external vantage point. Don't be afraid of them. Don't respond in fear to them. And that's hard, isn't it? Whenever you're, you're facing somebody who's persecuting you or, or has power over you, because remember in First Peter, these people are in many ways powerless. The people who are persecuting them have all the power over them. And, God's, and, and Peter says to them, don't even be afraid. Don't, don't show them fear. And then he says, also, don't even be troubled. Don't even be troubled. And I think there's a distinction between these two things. I think the one is external and the other is internal. 
The external is, how am I going to respond in fear? But the internal is, don't even let your heart be in angst. Don't be anxious, is perhaps another way of putting this. Now, what are they anxious or afraid of? Again, coming back to that first phrase I mentioned, that the Isaiah passage seems to suggest that here the, the idea isn't don't be afraid of them. But here's the, question, here's the thing. Don't be afraid of what they are afraid of. And I think the point is this, that that could be them themselves. Don't, because if mankind generally does fear those who have power, So it could be, don't be afraid of them. I think that's possible. But I think it's broader than that. And it's saying this. Don't be afraid of the things the rest of the world's afraid of. Don't express the same fears that your neighbors have. And we see this in various other contexts. Just think of 1 Thessalonians. Paul's talking to them and he says, hey, listen. Some of you have fallen asleep. Some of you had died. But here's the thing. You don't have to grieve like other people grieve. Because you don't have the same hope that they do. And here's the thing about us. We don't have to fear what everybody else fears. We don't have to. Because we have a different hope than everyone else has. Don't be afraid like the world. But how do we do it? How do we stand like Isaiah in the face of a coming Assyrian army? How do we stand like Peter's audience in the face of people who have power over us? And not only stand and say, I'm not going to be afraid, I'm going to live different. But I'm also not even going to be anxious over this. Because that's where I struggle. Maybe you don't. But I can be anxious. My heart can worry. I can awake at two in the morning and not be able to get to sleep for a few hours because I'm thinking, mulling over something. What do you do in the face of that? How do you settle an anxious heart? Well, I think Peter gives us the answer, but it actually comes from Isaiah as well. He says this in verse 15, but in your hearts... Regard Christ the Lord as holy. If you've got an older translation, you might have the translation that says, Sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Sanctify means to set apart, and that's the same thing that it's saying here. Regard Christ the Lord as holy. The idea is this set God apart from everything else. Because, did you know that God should be set apart from everything else? He is not like anything else. He is the cause of all things. He is in control of all things. He is master of all things. So you cannot look at circumstances and say, well, you know, God may be able to do something. No, God can do something. Now, that doesn't always mean God's going to do something. But it does mean this. Do you remember what we read in the last passage? Here's the good life. Why is it the good life? Because when you live according to what God says, it says the eye of the Lord is upon you and his ear is open to your prayers. Hear then what God says to you. You need not fear those who seek to persecute us. You need not fear unbelievers and what they can do to us because they are not ultimately in control. And that should settle our hearts. When you know the rest of the story, when you know where history is going, 
when you know the one who controls everything that will ever take place, then you can rest in a way that the world cannot understand. And they look at us and they say, why aren't you afraid like we're afraid? I'm reminded in, in this, I'm reminded of the stories of, of individuals on the sinking Titanic. Have you ever heard the stories of the sinking of the Titanic? It's quite a fascinating thing. But, but those who survived it remember quite distinctly a number of individuals who were running around telling people of Christ, refusing to get in lifeboats. When the very last lifeboats were going, they say, you need to get in. And, he, and uh, one individual in particular said, I don't need to get in because I know Christ. You see, he didn't fear drowning. He didn't fear what everyone else feared because he had a different hope. And you know, that made a mark on those people. They saw something that changed them that day. And it was a man who did not have fear. You see, in his heart, he had regarded Christ the Lord as holy, or he had set apart the Lord as holy. He had made him his fear. Have you ever heard the phrase, if you fear God, you have nothing else to fear? If you haven't, lodge it in your mind. Because it's true, isn't it? If you fear the one who controls all things, how could you fear something else? There's nothing else to fear. And this is what Peter is telling us. Listen, know God's sovereignty over your life. He is in control. And therefore, we ought not fear. And then we can use that very lack of fear as evidence to them of the truthfulness of Christ. In fact, this is exactly what Paul tells the Thessalonian congregation. He says that your response in the face of their persecution, your response of not fearing and continuing to live is evidence to them of their condemnation and of your righteousness. If we fear God, we have nothing else to fear. This is how we resolve our hearts. This is how we face a world. And by the way, this is where I'm at. Because to a great degree, I'm not all that concerned over what's going to happen to me in the future, that sort of thing. But you know where my concern lies? My kids. I'm sitting here thinking, like, this world is changing, and my kids are going to grow up in this world, and that's where the anxiety hits me hardest. But you know what I have to step back and say? Thank you, Lord. I don't have to fear this, because I know you. Because I can pray to you because your eyes are on me as I seek to live a righteous life before you. And your hand is cupped over your ear as you listen to my prayers. And so I will not fear this. Though the anxiety threatens to rise, I refuse it. Because I know the one who controls all things. So, we should expect persecution, but we shouldn't fear it. In fact, there's something else we should do in the midst of that persecution. We should rejoice in it. Did you notice that little phrase I skipped in verse 14? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, notice what he says. You will be blessed. Here's a future verb. It's saying, at a future point, you will be blessed. Why is Peter so confident of this fact? It's because of the quote I have for you up there on the screen. You know the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' greatest sermon. He ends the very opening of that with this phrase. He says, listen, 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, Blessed are those, or blessed are you when others revile you. By the way, this doesn't sound all that blessed, does it? But wait for it. Wait for it, because there's a reason you're blessed. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you. Notice this, falsely, we shouldn't give the world any reason to, to persecute us. Falsely, on my account, or for the sake of righteousness. Rejoice and be glad. Some translations take that rejoice and jump for joy. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, Jesus gives two reasons for rejoicing in the midst, in the midst of suffering. And that is that your reward is great in heaven. And this is what they have done to all of God's people. And I would suggest to you that there are three reasons why we should rejoice in the midst of suffering first is because you will receive eternal rewards. This is what I was talking about earlier when I said that the world should not understand us. Because when houses and lands, and by the way, this has happened to Christian people throughout church history. Remember the book of Hebrews? It says, you have had your houses and your lands plundered for my name. And how do you respond when that happens? What happens if, because of your embrace of Christ, you lose your property? Here's what Jesus says. Don't worry about it. You'll get something better. And by the way, he's not saying like in this life, you'll finally get that property on the lake or whatever the, the, the deal is. He's not saying that. What he's saying is in the life to come, the one that will never end, you'll get rewards there. And let me just simply ask you, if you had to sacrifice today, today, all of your money, but you knew that you would receive an amount of money that could never be taken away from you forever, and it's substantially more tomorrow, would you do it? I bet you would. Because you're thinking, well, you're, you're just thinking through in your mind, you're saying just one day. But you don't just compare what eternal life is going to be to this life. I mean, it's more like give everything you have for the next five seconds and then you'll get forever, Right? And Jesus says, your reward will be great in heaven. In some way then, and, and this is the reason why he says rejoice in it, because when such things happen to God's people, that's like an investment made that will never be lost. So rejoice. Rejoice. And be exceptionally glad. We can fear it. And I think in our present context, there's a lot of fear about how our world is changing and, and what that's going to mean for our churches and for our individual lives. And, and I can understand that fear. But to another extent, persecution and suffering is God's way of rewarding his children. It's God's way of investing in, in our eternity. And so, the first reason 
we are blessed is because we have eternal rewards. There's a second reason, though, and it's right here in Jesus' words. He says, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What he's saying is, and this is Jesus talking to his disciples. He's saying, listen, when you were persecuted, remember that they did it to the prophets who were before you. You see, all of God's people have suffered in this way, and you're just a part of that. So rejoice in it, because this is evidence of your good relationship with God. But you know, by the time we get to Peter, it's even stronger than that. Because Peter can say, listen, so they persecuted the prophets who were before us, and so they persecuted Jesus who was before you. And so now you, following in the steps of Jesus, have much reason to rejoice, because you know that you're on the right path when you find that the world responds to you negatively. But there's a third, th- third reason, and I think this is a little more hidden in the passage in the sense of it being a blessing of the persecution. But notice what he goes on to say here in the rest of the passage. He says, verse 15, In your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. All right, so that's the first part of it. Set apart Christ as holy. But then notice what he says next. Always being prepared. In other words, set the Lord apart and then get ready. Get ready. Now, a lot of people take this passage, they call it the apologetic mandate. And it's the mandate to go out and preach the gospel to other people. But actually, Peter's point is not that you need to go out. He says, just live faithfully and they'll come to you. Now, you're not hearing me say we're not supposed to go out. We are. But I'm simply saying in this passage, what he's saying is your right living in the face of persecution as you as you live without fear. You have to be prepared, prepared for what to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you. Did you catch that word he just used? He didn't say uh, give people a reason for the faith that is in you, though he could have. Do you know what he says? The hope that's in you. Because what he's pointing out is the reason you live differently is because you have a different hope. You have a different expectation. You've got a different forward view than the rest of humanity. And they want to know why when we speak evil of you, why when we do this to you, why aren't you responding the way we expect you to? Why don't you fear what we fear? And the response is, because I have a hope that you don't know. But you can know it. And you have to be prepared for that. You've got to be prepared to answer someone. When they come to you and say, why are you different? Or maybe, more more likely, why are you so weird? Right? In your workplace, are you prepared for that question? You know, all of us are over here doing this and you're not doing it. Why are you so weird? Why, Why don't you join us? Be ready to give an answer of the hope that's in you. But he says, do it with gentleness and respect, maintaining a good conscience. In other words, even though they have, they have treated you so poorly, they have persecuted you, they have, they have attacked you in so many different ways, respond to them like Christ responded to you. When you came to Christ, did he say, Phew. Look what you did to me. Look what I had to endure for you. Is that how Jesus responded when we came to him? No. 
He was gracious and kind, wasn't he? And, and he's saying here, that's how you respond to those who have been cruel and unkind to you. Have a gentleness, a respect, maintain a good conscience within your heart. So that, and here's the reason you're doing this. You're doing it so that when you are slandered, those who speak evil of your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. May be put to shame. In other words, that they will be embarrassed by the way they have treated you and by the way they have spoken of you. Now, there, are, there is a debate. Is this shame a shame that occurs in this life or in the life to come? And I think it could be either. But I think he's referring to a redemptive shame here. That people see your life. They've responded negatively to you. They ask you a reason of the hope that's in you. And they see through your lifestyle and words the light of the glory of Christ. And in this way then, what I find fascinating is that one of the blessings of persecution for God's people is not merely that we're going to receive eternal rewards for it. And it's not merely that it's confirmation that we're on the right team. But it's also that your very suffering may lead to the redemption of other people. It may be that the way you're mistreated is the very impetus that leads somebody to begin asking questions of you. You see, if we're not different, no one asks questions. But God's made us different. And to the degree that we live out that differentness is the degree to which people will not like us. And the degree to which people do not like us is the degree to which we'll be treated wrongly. And the degree to which we're treated wrongly will lead to a dissonance between how we're treated and the righteousness we're showing. And here's the hope in the midst of that dissonance, that tension, that somebody will be motivated by God's spirit to ask the question, you know, we've been talking poorly about this person. We've been saying this about them. But honestly, I know them, and they're not like that. They're really like, they're a righteous person. And their hearts will be smitten by their own sinfulness as they see the glory of Christ. Notice with me a final verse in verse 17. It seems like a throwaway verse, but it's not. Peter says, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now, in one sense, we've already talked about what this means. It means don't, don't suffer for doing evil. But notice the implication in the beginning of this verse. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. And here's the truth that you have to hear again and again and again, and I've been saying it a lot. So it very well may be God's will that you suffer. It very well may be God's will that you suffer. And in one degree, we want to say, well, no, no, that shouldn't be God's will. But if you've heard what we've said up to this point, it may be God's will that you suffer because by means of your suffering, you will receive greater reward. And he may be leading others to Christ through your suffering. And would this not be following the very footsteps of our Savior? Do you realize in the passage we're going to preach next week, Jesus endured the worst from humanity, but is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He received a redemptive prize that's beyond imagination. 
And the implication is that you can too. And he, in his suffering, led many to glory. Now, we can't lead people to glory in the way that Jesus led people to glory. We can't die for their sins. But our suffering very well may lead to the redemption of others. So what do we do with a passage like this? How, how, how do we walk away? Well, Peter's telling us, listen, here, here's the honest truth. If the world wasn't fallen, if nothing was broken, then you would never be persecuted for doing the right thing. But here's the thing. The world's broken. The world's fallen. And to the degree that you live righteously before God, you will suffer for it. But do not fear it. Don't fear it. Don't fear it because God is in control. He's Lord. And therefore, he's sovereign over your situation. And not only don't fear it for those reasons, but actually rejoice in it because your reward is great in heaven. And who knows? And you may not ever fully know what your suffering will do for the redemption of other people. Father, I thank you that you are so sovereignly guiding our lives. We thank you that we can trust you in the midst of hard and difficult circumstances, even when we suffer dearly. We thank you that we need not lament our lot in life, but instead we can rejoice. Oh, Father, I pray for these saints sitting before me, some of whom have had anxiety of heart. They have expressed a form of fear, fearing the things that our world fears. But your word tells us that we need not fear. Oh, Father, I pray for this congregation today. There very well may be someone who's entered into these doors and they do not know you. They have not yet experienced your great kindness and love. And perhaps they listened today and this was a bit of a foreign sort of message for them. I pray that they would see your people, see the reflection of your goodness in them. I pray that they would seek after you and find you for you are not far from any one of us. You long for us to come to you. So I pray that any who are here who do not know you would seek after you. Oh, Father, today you have been kind to us. You are Lord. Remind us of it. Amen.